If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. They called him a lot of things around Cape Cod in 1716. Toward the end of the years, they still call the Golden Age of Piracy. But the name that stuck was Black Sam Bellamy. The black in reference to his long black hair, which he always tied back with either a simple black band or a piece of black satin ribbon. Bellamy was well known to his contemporaries and chroniclers as a distinctive figure. A tall, strong, well-mannered, and very tidy man. He liked expensive clothes, especially black coats. His favorite weapons were four dueling pistols that he always carried in his sash. One chronicler, Daniel Defoe, using the pen name Samuel Johnson, wrote in A General History of Pirates and Robbers. He made a dashing figure in his long, deep-cuffed velvet coat, knee breeches, silk stockings, and silver-buckled shoes, with a sword slung on his left hip and four pistols on his sash. Unlike some of his fellows, Bellamy never wore the fashionable powdered wig, but grew his dark hair long and tied it back with a black satin bow. As captain, his leadership style was almost democratic. His crew was very fond of him, sometimes even referring to him as the Robin Hood of the Sea, and themselves as Robin Hood's men, according to a write-up by National Geographic magazine. Captain Bellamy was also a good tactician, Usually, he had two ships under his control. His flagship, the Whita, a captured slave ship, was powerful with many cannons, and the second one, the Marianne, was light but fast, which made a good balance. With coordinated attacks, they managed to capture ships easily without harming them. But what is most interesting about Black Sam Bellamy is the fact that he was, according to Forbes magazine, the most successful pirate of them all in terms of prizes. 53 captured ship's treasures, and most of those taken in the short span of one year, Bellamy's 27th year, and last full year before his untimely death in the waters off Cape Cod at the tender age of 28. And it was in the waters off Cape Cod that he left two ships, one his flagship, the Whyda, spelled W-H-Y-D-A-H, loaded with an immense treasure, wrecked and sunk in a winter storm and lying five feet below the sand, waiting for over 250 years to be discovered. The other, his faster attack ship, the Marianne, never having been found. The discovery of the Whyta, built originally as a slave ship called the Whyta Galley, gave us an incredible window to pirate history, and the five tons of treasure she carried included huge quantities of indigo, ivory, gold, and 20 to 30,000 pounds sterling, divided into 180 sacks of 50 pounds each. 
I'm always on the hunt for good books, and one of my best book finds, in addition to The Last Days of Blackbeard the Pirate by Kevin Duffus, which was included in our past episode titled Blackbeard, The Man and the Myth, was Expedition Wida by Clifford Berry, which told of treasure hunter Clifford Berry's hunt for Bellamy's flagship, a hunt that most people laughed off, but a quest for Berry, who couldn't give up trying to put together funding for the project from investors. If I remember correctly, it was at a meeting in New York with potential investors in yet another attempt to raise funds for a salvage effort, where he met Walter Cronkite, who persuaded the beleaguered Barry not to give up, to stick to his dream no matter what the cost. And Barry did, finally pulling together the needed funds to take on the very tricky waters off Cape Cod with a professional salvage team and the research and diving vessels needed to get the job done. Then it was a matter of securing rights to the find and negotiating the who gets what between the federal and state governments and agencies, investors, lawyers, insurance companies, environmental people, and all the rest. At one point in the salvage effort, it was looking like it would cost more to bring up the immense treasure than it was worth. It was a fascinating story, and I highly recommend you find the book before you sink everything you own into becoming a professional treasure hunter. Samuel Bellamy was the youngest of six known children born to Stephen and Elizabeth Bellamy in the parish of Hiddesley in Devonshire, England, in 1689. Elizabeth died soon after and was buried on February 23, 1689, three weeks before Samuel's baptism on March 18th. The future pirate became a sailor at a young age. In his late teens, he joined the Royal Navy and fought in several battles. Though it has been speculated that he may have had a wife and child, there is no definite historical proof of this. Bellamy traveled to Cape Cod around 1715, allegedly to seek some of his relatives there. According to an abundance of local lore on the subject, it is believed that he took up an affair with a local beauty, Goody Hallett, which history is named the Witch of Wellfleet. She has become a legend around Cape Cod, and this is how the story generally goes. A young Sam Bellamy, driven by a lust for riches that had sprung from his years on the sea with the British Royal Navy, had chosen to stay in east of Massachusetts for a few months while visiting relatives before heading down to the Florida coast to try to find his fortune in the wrecks of the Spanish treasure fleet that had sunk the previous year. The wreck-laden Florida coast had also lured Blackbeard, as well as other treasure hunters, giving many of them a start and contacts in piracy. During this time, while staying at the Crosby Tavern, Bellamy chanced to meet a beautiful young girl named Maria Hallett, 16 years of age, which was marrying age in those days, and they took a serious liking to each other, he filling her with stories of wealth and adventure, and she falling in love with the handsome young man, ten years her senior. He met her parents, who were not sold on him or his manner of wanting to make a living on the high seas, and they advised him to leave before he was run out of town, and to leave their impressionable young daughter alone. Stealing away to the barn, the two spent the night and before he left, he promised her he would return for her. Some months after his departure, Maria Hallett gave birth to a child that died the same night. She had hidden with the baby in a barn to keep it a secret from the town, but had to leave her baby to forage for food, and the baby had somehow choked on a piece of straw and died. The event caused such a scandal in the small town 
that the selectmen threw Maria in what is called today the old jail of Barnstable, Massachusetts, the oldest wooden jailhouse in the United States that's still standing, and still said to be haunted by her. While in prison, as the legend goes, she became so distraught that she lost her mind. The town of Eastham finally gave up on her and released her, perhaps figuring she had suffered enough, and she was eventually cast out of town with the stipulation that she never return. She therefore was reduced to scratching out a living, doing menial jobs, and lived in a lonely shack near the shore at South Wellfleet. As the years passed, Maria became a shell of her once beautiful self, and residents began to refer to her as a witch who had sold her soul to the devil. They called her Goody, and told stories of seeing her in the dunes on cold, windy nights, screaming curses into the storm on the head of Captain Sam Bellamy, the man who had betrayed her. Or maybe she was calling him home. As it turned out, Black Sam Bellamy had been keeping his promise all along, and was returning to those same shores loaded with enough booty to provide a few lifetimes of enjoyment for both of them, when tragedy in the form of a terrible winter storm drove his ship onto the shoals off South Wellfleet and tore it to pieces, taking the lives of Bellamy and 144 of his crewmen with it. Her ghost is said to be haunting the dunes overlooking the beach where the bodies washed up to this very day. When Sam Bellamy left Maria and Cape Cod in early 1716, he was accompanied by a group of men whose idea it was to seek and find what was left of the vast treasures on the Florida coast from the Spanish wreck of the 1715 treasure fleet. Other men and nations had been flocking to the rumored location of the wrecks, and some had been successful in finding it. Wealthy jeweler Paul Graves Williams, son of Rhode Island attorney General John Williams, joined Bellamy and funded their expedition. The treasure hunters apparently met with little success, as they soon turned to piracy in the crew of the pirate captain Benjamin Hornigold, who commanded the Marianne with his first mate, the soon-to-become-famous Edward Blackbeard Teach. Based in the Bay of Honduras in March of 1716, Bellamy and his men sailed aboard two periaguas. I've also heard them described as pirogues. These canoes were capable of carrying 30 men and an ample supply of cargo. Equipped with banks of oars and a single fore-and-aft rig sail, they were well-suited to small-scale piracy. Swift, able to row straight into the wind, to catch or escape from a square-rigged vessel, and drawing so little water they could be rowed or sailed over shoals, coral heads, and other hazards to give would-be pursuers the slip. The Periagra was often the first vessel pirates acquired. Thereafter, they would capture bigger and bigger vessels. One of the crewmen who was to become extremely valuable to Bellamy in the coming days was John Julian, a lithe 16-year-old native of the Mosquito Coast, skilled in gigging fish, turtle, and manatee for the table, and therefore highly prized by his fellows. But his real talent was in piloting the ship in shallow waters. He seemed to have a born eye for it, and in the future, Bellamy would appoint him as his ship's chief pilot. According to William Dampier, who interacted with the Mosquito Indians circa 1687, he wrote, They are tall, well-made, raw-boned, lusty, strong, and nimble of foot, long-visaged, lank black hair, look stern, hard-favored, and of a dark copper-colored complexion. 
their chiefest employment in their own country is to strike fish, turtle, or manatee. For this they are esteemed and coveted by all privateers. For one or two of them in a ship will maintain a hundred men, so that when we careen our ships, we choose commonly such places where there is plenty of turtle or manatee for those mosquito men to strike. And it is very rare to find privateers destitute of one or more of them, when the commander, or most of the men, are English. In the summer of 1716, the crew became irritated by Hornigold's unwillingness to attack ships of England, his home country. By a majority vote of the crew, Hornigold was deposed as captain of the Marianne and left the vessel with his loyal followers, including Teach, whom you already know to be Blackbeard. The remaining 90-man crew then elected Sam Bellamy as captain. Upon capturing a second ship, the Sultana, it was made into a galley, and with approval of the crew, Bellamy took it as his own and assigned his friend Powellsgrave Williams as commander of the Marianne. They sailed briefly alongside Olivier Lavasseur, who left early in 1717 to raid South America. However, Bellamy's greatest capture was to come in the spring of 1717 when he spotted the Waida Galley, sailing through the windward passage between Hispaniola and Cuba. Built in England in 1715 as a state-of-the-art 300-ton, 102-foot-long English slave ship with 18 guns, with 18 guns and with speeds of up to 13 knots, the Waida was on its maiden voyage in 1716 and had just finished the second Africa to the Caribbean leg of the Atlantic slave trade. Loaded with a fortune in gold, indigo, Jesuits' bark, ivory, and other precious trade goods from the sale of 312 slaves, Jesuits' bark, originally discovered in Peru, was believed to provide a cure for malaria and as such was considered a very valuable trade resource. Indigo, familiar to most of us as a striking color, is a deep blue colored dye which is produced by a plant of the same name. A plant and dye which was first discovered and used in, again, as with Jesuit's bark, Peru, going back as far as 4000 BC. By the time of the golden age of piracy, in the late 1600s and early 1700s, indigo was a highly valued and scarce product that was traded worldwide but only grown in a few places, the best known of which was Guatemala, on British slave plantations. It was used in the production of military uniforms and expensive clothing, and it was a cash crop known to only few, until a young business-minded woman named Eliza Lucas Pinckney in the American colonies figured out how to produce it. Her incredible story is now available at 1001 Stories for the Road, one of our sister shows. Available at www.1001storiesfortheroad.com or at our iTunes and Google Play app, 1001 Stories Network. Back on the high seas, Bellamy chased the white for three days before getting close enough to fire. After a single shot, Captain Lawrence Prince surrendered the white by lowering its flag. According to Spanish accounts, Lawrence Prince was a Dutchman from Amsterdam who arrived in the Caribbean in the late 1650s. In 1659, he was one of four men, including John Morris and Robert Searle, who bought a captured Spanish prize from Commander Christopher Mings following his 10-week voyage. Prior to Prince's joining the famous Welsh pirate Henry Morgan at Port Royal in 1670, 
Morgan being probably the best documented pirate of the 17th century, and certainly one of the best pirate commanders, and made doubly famous when Seagram's placed his name on the new brand of rum in 1944. Prince had previously sailed up the Rio Magdalena, intending to raid the town of Mampos, located 240 kilometers inland. Prince was forced to retreat, however, when they were surprised by cannon fire from a recently built island fort protecting the settlement. Prince and his men, determined to make voyage, then sailed north to Nicaragua in August. Prince sailed up the San Juan River, this time capturing a Spanish fort, and then paddling by canoe to Lake Nicaragua, where they successfully raided Granada. This was almost identical to Morgan's raid in 1664. Official Spanish reports of the incident claimed that the brutal prince made havoc and a thousand destructions, sending the head of a priest in a basket and demanding 70,000 pesos in ransom for the town. Arriving in Port Royal weeks later, Prince and two other captains were reproved by Governor Thomas Modiford for attacking the Spanish without a commission or letter of mark, which, by the way, had been Captain Morgan's ticket to success, and pretty much defined piracy in the 17th century. The authorized stealing of another nation's ships and their cargo for the benefit of the country who was backing the piracy. Piracy was a singular type of war committed on the high seas with impunity by the country with the biggest and baddest ships almost always England. Piracy would later hatch its own republic of independent criminals, the who's who of piracy. But the worst of it was financed by kings intent upon filling their treasure chests. England's crafty criminal minds would gladly let Spain plunder, kill, and raid the Americas for gold, forcing entire tribes into slavery to dig for gold, then send their gold and silver-laden ships out upon the high seas, only to be attacked and seized by British-sponsored pirates. In Port Royal, Governor Modiford thought it prudent not to press the matter of pressing Prince too far in this juncture, probably seeing more value in Prince's ability to deliver riches to the crown, and ordered Prince and his band of cutthroats to join Morgan on his raid against Panama, which they were very ready to do. Impressed by his raid at Granada, Morgan appointed Prince third in command under himself and Captain Edward Collier. He and Major John Morris later led the vanguard, numbering 300 buccaneers, against the Spanish fortress on the morning of January 28, 1671. Prince supported the main force, around 600 men, with Morgan and Collier leading the right and left wings, while the rear guard was commanded by Colonel Bledry Morgan. In the final advance, he and Morris commanded the left flank. Advancing in a wide sweep around the Spanish right flank, they captured a hill overlooking the Spanish lines. This not only forced the Spanish defenders into committing to an attack, it also disrupted plans by their commander, Juan Perez de Guzman, to stampede a herd of cattle and other livestock towards the advancing pirates. He had kept them behind his infantry line, intending to allow the buccaneers to pass through his lines, and setting them against the attackers to presumably disrupt and disorganize them just before the Spanish foot made contact with the buccaneer force. Instead, the Spanish cattle drovers were scared away by Prince's attack, allowing the cattle to wander among the Spanish lines. A simultaneous assault on the hill and against Morgan's advancing buccaneers ended in disaster as concentrated volley fire decimated Spanish forces, which suffered a hundred casualties in the first volley alone. The wandering cattle and concentrated fire 
left between four and five hundred dead and wounded before the Spanish finally retreated from the field. Some would say it was a bully victory for the pirates. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. By 1672, using his share from the Panama raid, Prince became a wealthy landowner on the Liquinae Plain as it was opened up for cultivation and farming. But nearly 35 years later, he was called back into service for England to captain a slave ship called the Wida, named after the West African slave port Wida, spelled O-U-I-D-A-H, but pronounced the same. And in the fall of 1716, the Wida was commissioned to take goods and treasure to the same trading port of the African Kingdom of Wida, in present-day Benin. After loading the Wida with 367 African slaves, most chained below decks, others chained side by side on their backs above decks, some with wives and children chained just apart from them. He sailed across the Atlantic to sell them in Jamaica, exacting revenge on those who misbehaved and feeding the dead to the sharks. But in February 1717, as he passed between Cuba and Hispaniola, he was chased by the Sultana, captained by the pirate Black Sam Bellamy, and the Marianne, captained by the pirate Paul's Grave Williams. After three days, Captain Lawrence Prince knew he had met his match and surrendered without a fight. After taking command of the Wida and making it his flagship, Bellamy gave Prince his original flagship, the Sultana, along with a small amount of treasure, and sent Prince packing back to England. Lawrence Prince made several slaving voyages before disappearing into history. Bellamy removed the captain's quarters and upgraded the Wida to 28 guns before beginning his rampage on Caribbean shipping. Daniel Defoe relates the story of the Wida overtaking a British sloop commanded by a Captain Beer. Bellamy had wanted to let the captain keep his ship, but his crew had just voted to burn it, and the captain of the merchant vessel had just declined an invitation to join the pirates. Bellamy is attributed with making this now-famous speech. I am sorry they won't let you have your sloop again, for I scorn to do anyone a mischief when it is not to my advantage. Damn the sloop! We must sink her, and she might be of use to you. Though you are a sneaking puppy, and so are all those who will submit to be governed by laws which rich men have made for their own security. For the cowardly whelps have not the courage otherwise to defend what they get by knavery. But damn ye altogether! Damn them for a pack of crafty rascals, 
and you who serve them for a parcel of hen-hearted numbskulls. They vilify us, the scoundrels do, when there is only this difference. They rob the poor under the cover of law, forsooth, and we plunder the rich under the protection of our own courage. Had you not better make then one of us than sneak after these villains for employment? Beer then replied to Bellamy that his conscience would not let him break the laws of God and man. But Bellamy continued, You are a devilish conscience rascal. I am a free prince, and I have as much authority to make war on the whole world as he who has a hundred sail of ships at sea and an army of a hundred thousand men in the field. And this my conscience tells me. But there is no arguing with such sniveling puppies who allow superiors to kick them about deck at pleasure. And so the Wida was a well-loaded ship, having left Africa with an estimated 500 slaves, gold, including Akan jewelry, and ivory aboard. It then traveled to the Caribbean, where it traded and sold the cargo and slaves for precious metals, a fortune in silver and gold, sugar, indigo, rum, logwood, pimento, ginger, and medicinal ingredients, which were then to be transported back to England. She was fitted with a standard complement of 18 six-pound cannon, which could be increased to a total of 28, as needed. The Wida was then fitted with 10 additional cannon above board, and Morris ballast below decks by Bellamy, and 150 members of Bellamy's crew were detailed to man the vessel. They raised the ship by clearing the top deck of the pilot's cabin, removing the slave barricade, and getting rid of other features that made her top-heavy. Bellamy and his crew then sailed onto the Carolinas and headed north along the eastern coastline of the American colonies, looting or capturing additional vessels on the way. Not a lot has been written about what prizes they took off the Carolinas, but it has been said that the Wida had seized over 50 ships during that time. Just two months after acquiring the Wida, as she and the Marianne approached Cape Cod, Williams, who commanded Bellamy's second ship, the Marianne, told Bellamy that he wished to visit his family in Rhode Island, and the two agreed to meet up again near Maine. Bellamy and the Wida captured several other small vessels in the area, including the Anne Galley, to which he appointed his quartermaster, Richard Noland, as captain. The Wida was caught up in a storm which heavily damaged the Wida and broke one of its masts. Patch-ups and repairs were effected until they reached the waters near Nantucket Sound, where greater repairs were effected, possibly at Block Island or Rhode Island. At some point during his possession of the Wida, Bellamy added another 30 cannon below decks. Two cannons recovered by underwater explorer Barry Clifford in August of 2009 weighed 800 and 1,500 pounds, respectively. Accounts differ as to the Wida's destination in her last few days. Some evidence supports local Cape Cod legend the Wida was headed for what is now Provincetown Harbor at the tip of Cape Cod so that Bellamy could visit his love, Maria Hallett, the Witch of Wellfleet. Others blame the Wida's route on navigation error. In any case, on April 26, 1717, near Chatham, Massachusetts, the Wida approached a thick, gray fog bank rolling across the water, signaling inclement weather ahead. Just the day before, in the morning of the 25th of April, the pirates had captured the ship Marianne with a hold full of Madeira wine. The captain of the Marianne refused Bellamy's request to pilot them up the coast, so Bellamy arrested the captain and five of his crew 
and brought them aboard the Whita Galley, leaving three of the original crew aboard the Marianne. Then Bellamy sent seven of his own men on board of Marianne, one of whom was the carpenter Thomas South, who had been forced by Bellamy and his crew to make repairs. Not wanting to join the pirate crew, he had been offered release by Bellamy after work was completed. But the surviving pirates later testified to the court that they had overruled Bellamy's decision and forced South to stay due to his much whimpering and complaining. South testified that it was his choice to accompany the six pirates going aboard the Marianne in hopes of escaping, possibly by jumping overboard and swimming ashore as they drew near to the Cape. Sometime around sunset that evening, the winds completely died, and a massive fog bank made visibility virtually nil. The four ships in Bellamy's fleet lost sight of one another. Bellamy's ships and, captained by his quartermaster Richard Nolan, and Fisher, moved out to sea, eventually making it to Damaris Cove Island with heavy damage. Williams had turned the Marianne away earlier, putting it into Block Island to visit relatives, but agreeing to meet Bellamy later off the coast of Maine. That weather turned into a violent nor'easter, a storm with gale-force winds out of the east and northeast, which forced the vessel dangerously close to the breaking waves along the shoals of Cape Cod. The ship was eventually driven aground of what today is called Marconi Beach at Wellfleet, Massachusetts, and purely by chance the neighboring beach to that of Sconset Beach of one of our recent episodes at 1001 Stories for the Road titled A Sconset Beach Story. At midnight, the Wida hit a sandbar, bow first in 16 feet of water about 500 feet from shore, pummeled by 70 mile per hour winds and 9 to 12 foot waves. The main mast snapped, pulling the ship into about 30 feet of water, where she violently capsized, sending over 4.5 short tons of silver and gold, more than 60 cannons, and 144 souls to the ocean floor. The 60-plus cannon on board ripped through the overturned decks of the ship and quickly broke it apart, scattering parts of the ship, 102 human bodies, and thousands of objects, over a four-mile length of coast. One of the two surviving members of Bellamy's crew, Thomas Davis, testified in his subsequent trial that in a quarter of an hour after the ship struck, the mainmast was carried by the board, and in the morning, she was beat to pieces. By morning, hundreds of Cape Cod's notorious wreckers, locally known as mooncussers, were already plundering the remains. Hearing of the shipwreck, then-Governor Samuel Shute dispatched Captain Cyprian Southack, a local salvager and cartographer, to recover money, bullion, treasure, goods, and merchandise taken out of the said ship. When Southack reached the wreck on May 3rd, he found that part of the ship was still visible, breaching the water's surface, but that much of the ship's wreckage was scattered along more than four miles of shoreline. On a map that he made of the wreck site, Southack reported that he had buried 102 of the 144 Wida crew and captives lost in the sinking, although technically they were buried by the town coroner, who surprised Southack by handing him the bill and demanding payment. The Marianne was also wrecked, 10 miles south at Poche Island. According to surviving members of the crew at the time of its sinking, the Wida carried from 4.5 to 5 tons of silver, gold, gold dust, and jewelry which had been divided equally into 180 
50-pound sacks and stored in between the ship's decks. Though Southack did salvage some nearly worthless items from the ship, little of the massive treasure aboard was recovered. Southack wrote in his account of his findings that the riches with the guns would be buried in the sand. With that, the exact location of the ship, its riches, and its guns were lost and came to be thought of as nothing more than legend. Of the 146 souls above the Wida, only two men, Welshman Thomas Davis, an 18-year-old Central American Mosquito Indian, previously mentioned, John Julian, are known to have made it to the beach alive. Although the beach was just 500 feet away, the bitter ocean temperatures were cold enough to kill the strongest swimmer within minutes. Other crew members were crushed by the weight of falling rigging, cannon, and cargo as the ship, her treasure, and the remaining men on board plunged to the ocean floor, swallowed up by the shifting sands of the Cape. When local residents arrived on the shore the next morning, more than a hundred mutilated corpses lay at the rack line with the ship's timbers. Yet somehow John Julian and the carpenter Thomas Davis managed to reach the shore and then climb the steep sand cliffs of what is now called Marconi Beach. While Thomas found temporary refuge in the home of Cape Cod locals Samuel Harding and his wife, there is no historical record telling where John was. They suddenly do reappear as a part of a group of nine pirates who were arrested and taken on horseback to Boston Jail a day or so after the wreck. The other seven pirates were survivors from the prize ship Marianne, Hendrik Quintor, Thomas South, Peter Cornelius Hoof, John Schwann, John Brown, Thomas Baker, and Simon Van Voorst. But unlike his comrades, John Julian did not stand trial for piracy. According to National Geographic's Pirates of the Wida, he was probably the Julian the Indian bought by John Quincy, whose grandson, President John Quincy Adams, became a staunch abolitionist. If John Julian and Julian the Indian were the same person, he suffered. A purportedly unruly slave, Julian the Indian was sold to another owner and tried often to escape. During one attempt, he killed a bounty hunter who was trying to catch him. Ultimately, the law did catch up to John Julian. A pithy paragraph in the weekly rehearsal, a Boston newspaper published in March of 1733, says, Thursday next is the day appointed for the execution of Julian the Indian. He went yesterday, both forenoon and afternoon, to hear the Reverend Mr. Checkley, who had prepared two discourses suitable to the occasion. The Reverend Ministers of the town had taken a great deal of pains with the unhappy criminal to prepare him for his approaching change, and tis hoped their labors had not been in vain. Elizabeth Moyson, in Master of the Sweet Trade, wrote, It was common for the unclaimed bodies of executed prisoners to be given to medical students for dissection, and according to an article in the Boston Newsletter on March 30, 1733, John's corpse was used for this purpose. The article goes on to tell us that the bones are preserved in order to be framed into a skeleton. A sad end for such a young man. All seven of Bellamy's men on board the Marianne survived, as did the Marianne's three original crewmen. Including the seven men aboard Marianne, nine of Bellamy's crew survived the wrecking of the two ships. They were all quickly captured by Justice Joseph Doan and his posse and locked up in Barnstable Jail. 
Word of this no doubt reached Maria Hatlett, and she was no doubt searching all over for Sam Bellamy. On October 18, 1717, six of those men were tried in Boston for piracy and robbery. The following were found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. John Brown of Jamaica, Thomas Baker and Hendrik Quintor of the Netherlands, Peter Cornelius Hoof of Sweden, John Sean of France, and Simon Vandervorst of New York. A curious group of international thieves, to be sure. Carpenters Thomas South and Thomas Davis, who were tried separately, have been conscripted by Bellamy, forced to choose between a life of piracy or death. Therefore, they were acquitted of all charges and spared the gallows. The last survivor, as you know, was a 16-year-old Mosquito Indian named John Julian. On the 15th of November, 1717, the famous Puritan minister Cotton Mather accompanied the six condemned men as they were rowed across Boston Harbor to Charlestown. All six men confessed and repented in the presence of Mather, but they were still hanged. 103 bodies were known to have washed ashore and were buried by the town coroner, leaving 41 bodies unaccounted for. The Marianne was also wrecked that night several miles south of the Whydah, leaving seven more survivors. Williams waited for Bellamy to rendezvous in Maine, but when Bellamy never appeared, Williams realized what had happened and sailed south to Nassau on the Marianne. Noland also searched for Bellamy off Maine, but failing to find him, he took the Anne Galley south, raiding ships along the way, before accepting the king's pardon in the Bahamas. Barry Clifford found the Whitest wreck in 1984, relying heavily on Southack's 1717 map of the wreck site, a modern-day, true-to-life pirate treasure map, leading to what was at that time, and still is, a discovery of unprecedented proportions. That the Whitehead had eluded discovery for over 260 years became even more surprising when the wreck was found under just 14 feet of water and 5 feet of sand. Now that might sound like an easy recovery, but those waters are seldom calm, they're very murky, they're full of undercurrents, and really only diveable certain times of the year, with weather being a constant enemy of vessels undergoing anchored exploration. The ship's location has been the site of extensive underwater archaeology, and more than 200,000 individual pieces have since been retrieved. One major find in the fall of 1985 was the ship's bell, inscribed with the words, the Whydah Galley, 1716. With that, the Whydah became the first ever pirate shipwreck with its identity having been established and authenticated beyond doubt. Work on the site by Clifford's dive team continues on an annual basis. Selected artifacts from the wreck are displayed at Expedition Whydah Sea Lab and Learning Center in Provincetown, Massachusetts. A selection of those artifacts went on a tour across the United States under the sponsorship of the National Geographic Society, and they are normally housed at the Whydah Pirate Museum in West Yarmouth, Massachusetts. Famously, the youngest known member of the Whydah's crew was a boy approximately 11 years old named John King. Young John actually chose to join the crew on his own initiative the previous November, when Bellamy captured the ship on which he and his mother were passengers. He was reported to have been so insistent that he threatened to hurt his mother if he wasn't allowed to join Bellamy. Among the Whydah's artifacts recovered by Clifford were a small black leather shoe, together with a silk stocking and fibula bone, later determined to be that of a child between 8 and 11 years old, 
confirming yet another pirate tale as fact. A museum exhibition called Real Pirates, the Untold Story of the Wida from Slave Ship to Pirate Ship toured the United States from 2007 to 2014. The venues included the Cincinnati Museum Center, the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia, the Field Museum in Chicago, Nauticus in Norfolk, the Science Museum of Minnesota, and Union Station, Kansas City. The venue includes videos, artifacts, educational live personal narrations to include supplementary audio programs, interactive activities, a three-quarter scale mock-up of the rear of the vessel, and is supported by costumed actors portraying real-life historical pirates from the ship. I remember it was here at Norfolk's Nauticus for a while, and it did very, very well. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. No one has ever attempted to estimate the value of the plunder that was taken during what writers and historians call the Golden Age of Piracy, roughly a 30-year period that lasted from the late 1600s to about 1720-25, when mostly English and American mariners, in a lust for wealth and adventure, and others working for the crown, took to the high seas, cruising the pirate round from North America around the tip of Africa to pillage the eastern seas, ravaging the coasts and islands, terrorizing cities, seizing ships, and generally spreading terror, murder, and mayhem wherever they went. Some, like Black Sam Bellamy, were known for their fairness and judgment with captives, but others saw no problem with torturing their prisoners or setting fire to slave ships, or cities for that matter. But most knew that the end game was the gallows, and many died kicking at the end of a rope, or by the sword. Their names? Captain William Kidd, Captain George Cusack, Steed Bonnet, Captain Calico Jack Rackham, Blackbeard, and hundreds of other pirates and lesser-known crewmen who were caught and cornered and killed, often in front of crowds eager to watch their demise. We have many more pirate episodes planned, so keep an eye out for them in the coming weeks. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We're a proud part of the 1001 Stories Network, which is comprised of this podcast and two others, 1001 Stories for the Road and 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We just published yesterday, May 1st, 2018, our first book for 1001, titled 1001 Classic Short Stories Fireside Collection, Volume 1, at Amazon Kindle. Volume 1 is a collection of 10 stories, all dealing with the themes of love, relationships, marriage, family, and humor in this collection, with different themes such as adventure, survival, and courage, to name a few, planned for future collections. This one is starting in Kindle. It's an ebook, and it'll be everywhere ebooks are sold in the coming days and weeks. Right behind this is the audio version of this book, which has also been submitted and is awaiting its final sound engineering. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you. I am very eager to see classic literature reach the hands and minds of as many people as possible because I believe that it offers interested people a path to the past as well as the fruit that good literature bears in terms of learning and self-improvement. We are exposed to some of it in school, but much of that is now modern literature, much of that geared toward awakening social consciousness in young adults, and much less in extolling the obvious virtues of good writing as well as the positive human traits of resourcefulness, courage, humility, virtue, responsibility, and purity. I really can't think of better reading for any age than the classics. We will also be doing collections from our other two shows, but for now, this is a good start. I encourage you to search Amazon for our book and offer it as a gift to someone who loves good stories. And please leave a review for us. I'll put the link in the show notes for you. Also, May is subscribed to 1001 Stories Network Month, and I'm asking each and every one of you who hasn't signed on yet to please take the few minutes and join our band of premium members who support this show. Most are getting the free app, 1001 Stories Network, with all three shows on it, and then subscribing for $2.99 a month using the link I provide in the show notes. With subscriptions, only a very few people generally respond, but many of you have stepped forward and taken the leap, and for that I am eternally grateful. Your support helps me pay the hosting fees for my shows, my studio fees, and costs for new equipment. In addition, I now do this full-time, and I have all kinds of additional expenses with my work. So that $2.99 a month from you guys is a huge help. Take a minute and show us a little thanks for the hundreds of great stories we've done and the thousands of hours of entertainment we have provided, and get access to everything by becoming a member. Thank you. Thanks also for your reviews. With everything else going on, that area really needs attention. everyone, it's John Hagedorn, and this is 1001 Stories for the Road. We're a proud part of the 1001 Stories Network, and we like to think of ourselves as caffeine for the curious. Today's story takes place in South Carolina many years ago, when South Carolina was a struggling colony. And it involves a 16-year-old girl named Eliza Lucas, whom history has just about forgotten. But not South Carolina. In recent years, Eliza Lucas was the first woman ever to be inducted into the South Carolina Business Hall of Fame. If you've ever traveled to coastal South Carolina, down around Charleston, you no doubt remember the lazy rivers, the low-hanging cypress trees, the moss-covered dense forests, the slow heat that lays on the land, and the unchanged atmosphere of it all that seems as if history will reveal itself around every turn. If you saw the Civil War movie, North and South, you'll remember the long entryway lined by cypress trees that Ori Main, played by Patrick Swayze, 
road when he returned from the war to his southern plantation home. Or you might remember the scene from the notebook where hundreds of white swans lifted slowly from the lake there at Boone Plantation in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, which has provided the backdrop for both these movies and others. Charleston has its sights and its memories at Fort Sumter and Fort Moultrie, at Patriot's Point, where the latest incarnation of the legendary USS Yorktown is docked, and throughout the old city, where French influence left its mark all around the old town, and where plantations once thrived. Yes, these plantations used slaves, and there are no apologies sufficient to excuse slavery in any of its forms. Yet all of this has become a part of history. It all happened. A great war was fought. Hundreds of thousands of men died. The nation came together, and slavery was defeated, at least in this country. The history lives on, and the people of all colors and backgrounds left their mark. Among these persons was a determined 16-year-old girl named Eliza Lucas, whose name and fame has been largely lost to history, yet whose accomplishment in bringing a new cash crop to South Carolina in 1742 helped to secure the future of the fledgling colonies. What was the new cash crop, you ask? Indigo. The plant and the dye that gives us the brilliant deep blue color that you see in the American flag. The color that was present in the Continental Army uniforms. The color that was present in half of the flags of the 13 colonies. And the bonnie blue flag of the Confederacy. It was the color so deeply linked to slavery, making a deep blue of the slaves' hands who worked in the indigo fields, and very possibly giving rise to the expression, the blues. Indigo became the king of dyes early in history, in ancient Greece, along the Silk Road in China, in Mesopotamia and Persia, in rugs and fibers and clothing made there, and in Africa, where it was considered to be a color representing wealth and fertility, and by tribes in Australia and Guatemala, where it was used for face and body decoration, as well as in murals and pottery. In the holds of pirate ships, along with the treasures of gold and silver and jewels, indigo had its place as an extremely rare and valuable commodity, a plant which could only be found in a few places, and could only be processed in a few places, like Western Africa and Guatemala and which required a tricky process in order to produce the actual colored dye, and then only in small quantities. The Spanish first began to grow indigo in the mid-1500s on plantations along the Pacific coast of Central America in today's Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, eventually extending cultivation to Mexico and later Florida. They also established indigo plantations on the island of Hispaniola, the French also got into the act, establishing 3,000 plantations in Haiti, using slaves in the same manner that the Spaniards had been doing for hundreds of years before the British brought slaves to colonial America. In 1738, the year Eliza would turn 16, Colonel Lucas moved his family from Antigua to South Carolina, where he had inherited three plantations from his father. With tensions increasing between Spain and England, he believed his family would be safer in Carolina than on the tiny exposed island in the West Indies. Eliza's grandfather, John Lucas, had acquired three tracts of land, Garden Hill on the Combahee River, 
1,500 acres, another 3,000 acres on the Waccamaw River, and Wapu Plantation, 600 acres, on Wapu Creek, a tidal creek that connected the Ashley and Stono Rivers. They chose to reside at Wapo, which was 17 miles by land to Charleston, then known as Charlestown, and 6 miles by river. In 1739, Colonel Lucas had to return to his post in Antigua to deal with the political conflict between England and Spain. He was appointed lieutenant governor of the island. England's involvement in the War of the Austrian Succession thwarted his attempts to move back to South Carolina with his family. Eliza's letters to him show that she regarded her father with great respect and deep affection and demonstrated that she acted as head of the family in terms of managing the plantations. Her mother died shortly after they moved, which left her with a great load of responsibility. Eliza was 16 years old when she became responsible for managing Wapu Plantation and its 20 slaves, plus supervising overseers at two other Lucas plantations, one inland producing tar and timber, and a 3,000-acre rice plantation on the Waccamaw River. In addition, she supervised care for her extremely young sister, as their two brothers were still in school in London. As was customary, she recorded her decisions and experiments by copying letters in a letter book. This letter book, which still exists, is a very impressive collection of personal writings of an 18th century American woman. It gives insight into her mind and into the society of the time. Eliza, much like George Washington, was an amateur botanist and it was a science that excited and challenged her. From Antigua, Colonel Lucas sent Eliza various types of seeds for trial on the plantations. They and other planters were eager to find crops for the uplands that could supplement their cultivation of rice. First, she experimented with ginger, cotton, and alfalfa. And starting in 1739, she began experimenting with cultivating and improving strains of the indigo plant, for which the expanding textile market created demand for its dye. When Colonel Lucas sent Eliza indigo ferra seeds in 1740, she expressed her greater hopes for them, as she intended to plant them earlier in the season. In experimenting with growing indigo in new climate and soil, indigo was only thought to be grown in tropical climates and was not a known plant on North American soil. After three years of persistence and many failed attempts, the first year's crop was killed by frost, the second by worms. Eliza finally proved that indigo could be successfully grown and processed in South Carolina. While she had first worked with an indigo processing expert from Montserrat, she was most successful in processing dye with the expertise of an indigo maker of African descent whom her father hired as a free man from the French West Indies. Eliza used her 1744 crop to make seed and shared it with other planters, leading to an expansion in indigo production. She proved that colonial planters could make a profit in an extremely competitive market. Due to her successes, the volume of indigo dye exported increased dramatically from 5,000 pounds in 1745 to 130,000 pounds by 1748, just three years later. Indigo became second only to rice as the South Carolina colony's commodity cash crop and contributed greatly to the wealth of its planters. Before the Revolutionary War, indigo accounted for more than one-third of the total value of exports from that colony.
from the time that she began her work in South Carolina on Wapu Plantation to the time that she died in Philadelphia in 1793. Eliza carefully copied all the letters she had written to her family, friends, and acquaintances into that letter book we mentioned before. In her letter book, she organized her writings into multiple volumes, each depicting with great detail a different period during her life. The volumes recount most of her life, with the bulk of her writings referring to the time between 1739 and 1762. Her letters described the many years of experiments that she did on the crop to make it successful. They also detail her marriage to longtime friend and neighbor Charles Pinckney in 1744, and their home is now the Pinckney Historic Site, located at 1254 Long Point Road in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, about six river miles north of Charleston. The second set of volumes begins around 1753 and ends around 1757. By this time, Eliza and Charles had begun their new life together and had multiple children. These sets reference the time she and her family moved to London for her husband's job. They lived there for about five years while Charles worked as the commissioner of the South Carolina colony. The third set of volumes refers to the years 1758 through 1762. It corresponds with the family's return to South Carolina and soon after the death of her husband. She was left widowed and in charge of overseeing her family's plantations, along with her late husband's as well. She lived as a widow for more than 30 years until her death in 1793, while she was searching for a cure for breast cancer. Though she continued to keep copies of her letters after her husband died, very few of them remain today. This letter book is one of the most complete collections of writing from 18th century America and provides a valuable glimpse into the life of an elite colonial woman living during this time period. Her writings detail goings-on at all the plantations, her pastimes, social visits, and even her experiments with indigo over several years. Many scholars consider this letter book extremely precious because it describes everyday life over an extended period of time rather than during a singular event in history. Eliza passed her letter book on to her daughter Harriet, who in turn passed it to her daughter. The letter book was passed down from mother to daughter well into the 20th century, at which point the Lucas Pinckney family donated the letter book to the South Carolina Historical Society. The surviving Pinckney sons became influential leaders. Charles Coatsworth Pinckney was a signatory of the United States Constitution and was the Federalist vice presidential candidate in 1800. Thomas Pinckney was appointed minister to Spain, where he negotiated Pinckney's Treaty in 1795, which guaranteed the U.S. navigational rights on the Mississippi River to New Orleans. That became a huge factor during the Battle of New Orleans in 1812. Eliza Lucas Pinckney died of cancer in Philadelphia in 1793, and President George Washington served as pallbearer at the funeral for this woman, whom he respected greatly and with whom he had shared so much in common, especially his love for botany. For her contributions to South Carolina's agriculture, Eliza Lucas Pinckney was the first woman to be inducted into the South Carolina Business Hall of Fame in 1989. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories for the Road. We're a proud part of the 1001 Stories Network, which takes in this show and two others. 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories and Mysteries, and 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. 
both well-loved and much-listened-to audio podcasts. All three can be found now at the same place, our new app called 1001 Stories Network. It's free. It's at iTunes and Google Play app stores. And we placed a link in the show notes for you. We're asking each and every one of you, many of whom have been with us for years, to become supporters of our 1001 shows by subscribing to our show for only $2.99 a month, less than a cup of blended coffee at most places, and becoming a premium member. Only the most recent 15 episodes of our shows are available for free. And once you get beyond that, there are hundreds of great stories that we've done that are only available to premium members. Your support is helping us. One of the last of the non-corporate-owned podcasts still in the top few hundred to move forward into the future. The podcast business has become extremely competitive with over 650,000 podcasts out there on iTunes and with powerful corporate entities creating hundreds of new shows using a wealth of producers, writers, editors, sound engineers, and the like to create shows that they market heavily for listeners, competing for advertising dollars, and thus sending smaller one-man productions like us into oblivion. We still hang on thanks to a steady listenership with fans like you. Thank you. But we need to double and triple our listener count just to keep up. That's something everyone can help with by helping your friends and family to download our shows or our app, 1001 Stories Network. All those links are in the show notes for you. I'd also like to mention that we published our first Kindle book at Amazon just a couple of days ago. It's called 1001 Classic Short Stories Fireside Collection, Volume 1, and it contains 10 of our episodes from Classic Short Stories. The audio form of our collection will be available soon through audiobooks and similar audiobook sellers. You can find 1001 Classic Short Stories Fireside Collection by searching at Amazon or at our new website, the1001store.com. And we'll see you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. 
Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.